Would you like to join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you seal the covenant with your people. You said, I will be your God and you will be my people, and that is covenant. That's covenant love. And within your covenant, there is freedom. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would free us from the noise within our heads, within our emotions, the agendas we have about the rest of the day, that we might be captivated by truth and the beauty of truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I suffered from a very serious case of the greener grass syndrome during my young adult years. In relationship particular to my faith and my educational journey. See, I came to faith by the grace of God. God pursued me. And in my junior year of high school, I said yes to that pursuit for the first time. And it was, a, it was both exciting and challenging to be a new believer in Jesus in my high school campus, particularly as the drum major of the band. I was just kind of thrown into that new reality. And I remember thinking towards my senior year, I bet it would be easier to live a faithful Christian life at a Christian college. Certainly the grass will be greener there. So off I went to a small private Christian college with all my expectations of a sort of a spiritual greenhouse. But it wasn't quite so. By the end of my third year in college, I was spiritually bored and a bit disillusioned. Then I thought, what if I could study in a more dynamic place? Was there a greater contrast between light and darkness? And at least you could know where people stand. Something more exciting. So I transferred to San Diego State. At that time, it was the number two party school in the nation. <laughs> Second to Chico. <laughs> I found it definitely exciting. My faith did come alive as it was greatly challenged. So much so that I helped start a university ministry there on the campus. But it was also a hard place to follow Jesus. Spiritually, emotionally, and relationally, it was draining. I thought, I need to go to a place where I can find some refuge, some mentors in the faith, so I'll go to seminary. Do you see a pattern I don't think I'm alone in this greener grass syndrome. Every person in this room faces a greener grass belief sometime in your life. Students, if I could at least get to fifth grade, then the grass will be greener. If I at least get to middle school, and the grass will be greener. And then you're an eighth grader going, if I can at least get to high school. And then that goes on, and we become young adults, and if I could at least get another job, the grass will be greener. Or another car, another pair of shoes. I could go on about that stuff. Another house, another neighborhood. If I had another electronic device, the grass would be greener. Some of us say, 
the grass would be greener if I had another body. You know, families, churches, and nations also have greener grass notions. If we just had this program or this policy or this kind of leader, the grass would be greener. By the way, I want to I give a shameless advertisement. If you're looking for a place to wrestle with why human beings are relentlessly pursuing greener grass, please join us in the parlor at 11 for our takeaway. This is a deep conversation. It's a fun conversation. My question for you is, when have you looked for greener grass? Not if, but when. What does that look like for you? Let's start at the back and we'll go around the circle. (laughs) We'll get to Kathy. I would love to do that, but... Today our focus is the particular greener grass of what if it would be greener grass if I was in another relationship or another set of relationships. This fall, we're making our way through 1 Corinthians, and, and I, of course, I get the passage on sex, marriage, and singleness. Thanks, Morgan, again. And I'd like you to just take a look at the insert. It's kind of uh, gray. And you'll have verses 1 to 17 in the message translation, which I found after looking at the ancient text as interpreted by amazing ancient scholars, I found that Eugene Peterson's translation has taken that intent and faithfully translated it into the language of our contemporary culture in a beautiful and powerful way. That's why I've chosen this. And I'm going to read the whole thing, and you're going to join me, all of you, in unison. I just got your attention. Look on the back page. Verse 17, where it says, don't be wishing, and don't be wishing. Everybody see that? You're all going to kick in together by reading that part with me aloud. Are you with me? And I encourage you to read it boldly. Verse 1. Now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly. but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality, the husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is the decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Sometimes I wish everybody were single like me. It's a simpler life in many ways. 
But celibacy is not for everyone. Can anybody say amen to that? Any more than marriage is. Can anyone say amen to that? Oh, don't let your husband say that. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. I do, though, tell the unmarried and widows that singleness might well be the best thing for them as it has been for me. But if they can't manage their desires and emotions, they should by all means go ahead and get married. The difficulties of marriage are preferable by far to a sexually tortured life as a single. And if you are married, stay married. This is the master's command, not mine. A wife should leave her husband. If a wife should leave her husband, she must either remain single or else come back and make things right with him. And a husband has no right to get rid of his wife. For the rest of you who are in mixed marriages, Christian married to non-Christian, we have no explicit command from the master. So this is what you must do. If you are a man with a wife who is not a believer, but who still wants to live with you, hold on to her. If you are a woman with a husband who is not a believer, but he wants to live with you, hold on to him. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be left out. As it is, they are also included in the spiritual purposes of God. On the other hand, if the unbelieving spouse walks out, you've got to let him or her go. You don't have to hold on desperately. God has called us to make the best of it as peacefully as we can. You never know. Wife, the way you handle this might bring your husband not only back to you, but to God. You never know, husband. The way you handle this might bring your wife not only back to you, but to God. Please join me. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Can anyone say amen? The people in ancient Corinth had a reputation for being unruly, unruly, hard-drinking, and sexually promiscuous. The word to Corinthianize in the Greek was widely used in the Roman world as a proverb for the practice of debauchery. Imagine, you know, people using the word of Clayton, and Clayton meant debauchery around the Bay Area. (laughs) That's what Corinth, Corinth meant as a proverb. Add to this, Corinth had 12 different pagan temples, which often combined fertility, worship, and sex. One of these was the Temple of Aphrodite, where at one time people worshipped with the help of 1,000 sacred prostitutes. Into this cultural context came the gospel. You can see that in Acts chapter 18. Paul and his team spent a year and a half proclaiming Jesus Christ in Corinth and nurturing these new believers. They taught and modeled with them how to live out this new life of salvation and holiness in community with one another in a pagan world. Then Paul went on his way to the next town in the next church. Sometime later, Paul got word 
that his absence, in his absence, things had more or less fallen apart in Corinth. Factions had developed, morals were unraveling, and worship had degenerated into spiritual consumerism. They also developed some dubious beliefs. An illustration is their view of the body, of sex, and spirituality. You see, the believers in Corinth had difficulty shedding their culture's dualistic understanding of the body and the, the spirit in the body. Spirit is good, body is evil, was the philosophy. And in a really strange way, this belief led to two equal and opposite practices, which were both destructive. On one side, if the body is evil, why not just indulge its every desire? And the other side said, if the body is evil, why not deny it and to practice asceticism? And so you had these two strange sort of streams of thought about the body going on in Corinth. As new believers in a pagan, promiscuous culture, you can imagine the confusion this brought to their experience of marriage and singleness. In 1 Corinthians 6, Morgan handled that last last week, and 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's providing a pastoral response to these questions from confused Corinthian believers. It's kind of like an ancient stump the pastor. There are four big questions. And I, I just believe these questions are deeply relevant today. Question number one is addressed in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, if you look at your notes. By the way, uh, if you take a pen and go down to the second paragraph in the middle of it, in which it says abstaining from sex, and put the number 5 by that, that's where you you know where verse 5 is. That will be helpful as we move on. Does that make sense? Are you confused? All right, I'll go over that one more time. Second paragraph. Everybody with me? All right. Go to the middle of the second paragraph where it says bed or out. Put a number five next to that, and that's where verse five starts. So question number one. Could, could the grass be greener if I was in a sexual relationship? Is that kind of a relevant question? Paul's answer, certainly. Period. But only within a certain context. Sex is an amazing gift of God. Sexual intimacy is a beautiful gift of God. God did not one day look on his creation and say, what on earth will they come up with next? Sex is powerful, and only the covenant context of marriage is powerful enough to protect this gift and protect those who engage in it, particularly in a sexually disordered world. By the way, check out Paul's countercultural teaching on the nature of this covenant relationship. You need to remember, he's addressing a male-dominated culture. And he says this, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. 
Marriage is a decision to serve one another in bed or out. If you're interested in going to, into that further, join us in the marriage course in the spring. Question number two, verses five and six. This is the question, could the grass be greener for those of us who are married? In other words, could, would it be spiritually helpful? Because these Corinthian new believers are really asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? Could it be spiritually helpful if we abstained from sex within our marriage? Paul's definite answer is no. No. And literally in the Greek text, he says, do not defraud one another in this way. Defraud means cheat. Do not cheat your spouse out of their right to sexual intimacy. Now that is a different way of thinking about cheating on your spouse. But Paul advises, let that abstinence be only in a certain context, a time period that's agreed with by husband and wife for a focused season and prayer, then come back together. Imagine this. Paul seems to be requiring that we ask for permission from our spouse to go to a prayer conference. You didn't get it. It's supposed to be a joke. Sorry. All right, we'll move on. Question number three. Verses seven to nine. Could the grass be greener if I just avoid marriage altogether? I wonder if anybody's ever asked that. Paul's answer, yes. He explains that he has found the single life a simpler life. Later in chapter seven, this is my paraphrase, he says, I want you to live as free of complications as possible and being married is complicated. With all the nuts and bolts of domestic life, the demands on your time, not to mention the never-ending energy involved in caring for a spouse and keeping a marriage healthy in today's covenant-averse culture. But, Paul emphasizes in verse 7, celibacy is not for everyone. I didn't hear an Amen. Any more than marriage is for everyone. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others, and then, speaking to these new believers in pagan Corinth with pastoral wisdom, he says, but the difficulties of marriage are preferable by far if you're living in a sexually tortured life as a single. He's a very practical pastor. Finally, question number four. Look at verses 10 to 16. Could the grass be greener if I divorce my spouse? In other words, could the grass be greener if I was single again? And Paul's answer in verse 10 is no. Stay married. This is the master's command, not mine. In other words, he's saying, I didn't make this up. This is right from Jesus. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he always went back to the Father's intent in creation. For example, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees were looking for a legal loophole for divorce, he said, haven't you read, which is kind of a, a diss on Pharisees, haven't you read your Bible, that the, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
That's the master speaking. And yet with incredible pastoral realism, as he speaks to these confused Corinthians, he says, if a wife does leave her husband, if a husband does leave his wife, in other words, sometimes divorce happens beyond our control. Are you with me? But he, he, he puts a rider on that. He says, that person has just two options, according to our Lord, to remain single or to reconcile. The other realism is if a non-believing spouse walks out on a marriage... You need to let them go. But the believing spouse, he says firmly, must never initiate this separation. And then he concludes with this powerful and hopeful argument, if you look in verse 16, for how God can redeem a mixed marriage and family. It's beautiful. That God can work. And some of you in this room have seen that. And some of you are waiting to see that. Amen? I know. So, does Paul say the grass is greener if you are married? <laughs> does he say that the grass is greener if you remain single or become single again? You know, we really long for a clear yes or no in our confused culture, don't we? And guess what Paul gives us? He gives us two yes buts and two no buts. And I think he does this because he, he says, if your identity is in Christ, keep your focus, keeping your focus on greener grass causes you to miss the gifts of God in the present moment right in front of you. You know, I was looking on the internet for greener grass proverbs, and there's a lot of them. I just wanted to share my favorites. The grass may be greener on the other side, but the water bill, water bill is higher, too. <laughs> the grass may be greener on the other side, but what if it's over a septic tank? <laughs> or, as one said, the grass is always greener around a fire hydrant. Grass is greener on the other side to find out it's astroturf. But this is what I think Paul's proverb was. The grass is always greener where you water it. Can you say that with me? The grass is always greener where you water it. Please read with me again the concluding Paragraph in verse 17. With the boldness that you read before. That was beautiful. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. We long to be a church that has such a sense of 
extended spiritual family, just like at Thanksgiving, when, I, when my tribe gets together, when my clan gets together for Thanksgiving, there are singles and marrieds, young and adults, but we forget those distinctions because we're all in such love with each other and having such fun, and we want that here, amen? And our next wave of community groups are all about building that kind of extended spiritual family, and I am so excited about that. Are you? Is creating that extended spiritual family that's not defined by your age status or your marital status. I think that's what Paul's talking about. What we need in a sexually confused culture is community that's centered in Christ. We want that. Would you join me in prayer? I just invite you to bring your greener grass situation. It may be economic, it may be employment, it may be your greener grass as if I was just young again. (laughs) If I was just blank again. Or it's future related. Bring that real ache. The Father sees it anyway, so bring it to the Father. He loves you dearly. This is the covenant love of God that we, we stand in. Father, you have made me for yourself. You are redeeming me for yourself. You are calling me to live with you right here, right now. Help me to identify any idols that lie behind my relentless pursuit of greener grass. Grant me instead a growing heart of gratitude for your good gifts. Send your Holy Spirit to water the grass upon which I now stand right here. And Father, we ask that you would make us a witness of the holy contentment that you provide in a restless culture. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen.